Ah, hallelujah. Glory be to God in the highest. Father God, we want to thank you once again for this incredible opportunity to come before your presence, to honor you, to bless you, to glorify you, to exalt you. In particular, God, we thank you for this weekend as we celebrate the independence of this great United States of America. We thank you, Father God, for Independence Day. And yes, while America is at the crossroads, even as I speak, our hope and our confidence is in you. You are the lawgiver. You are the judge. And you are the king. And according to your word in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22, you promised that you would save us. And so, Father God, even as we go through these situations and happenings in America, we are thankful because we know the outcome that it shall be well with the United States. That America will arise again and we will glorify and honor your name. Thank you for the progress of the past and thank you for the glorious future that awaits this nation. As we embrace again your righteousness and your plans and your visions for which this nation was born. We pray, God, this morning for our leaders and those in authority. According to your word, you say, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. And so, Father God, we thank you this morning for our president, our governors, our legislators, our state and local officials, all of those that are in authority in this great land. We pray for them that your will alone be done in their life on earth, in the United States, as it is in heaven. Thank you, Father God, that your will will be done. And yes, we will be a more perfect union because of your goodness and of your glory that is upon us. Thank you as we accept our role and our responsibility in what you are doing. And so, Lord God, we honor you, we bless you. We praise your name now and forever. In Jesus' name, and everybody said... Amen and amen. Again this morning, we want to welcome everyone that's joining us from far and near, from across this United States and across the world. We are WorkFan, where we are building strong families and serving global communities. And so this morning, I continue with the message that I began a, uh, two weeks ago. Uh, this will be the third installation of that message uh, on race relations and reconciliation. Race relations and reconciliation. And so this morning, I'm doing the part three of this message. And as I've said previously, I just want to uh, caution us. I want to uh, implore us to please be patient. Uh, many people are thinking, oh, well, you didn't say this, you didn't say that. Maybe you should have done this, you should have done that. I'm saying this because I want you to know this is a marathon. I said it from day one, from the first installment. This message is a marathon. In other words, there is no way in any 30, 40 minute period of time that I can get everything into a message that needs to be said. And so be patient. God is going to lead us line upon line, precept upon precept, until we finish and come to the end of the message. So for this morning, this part, this installation, I'm going to address righteousness and justice met at the cross. So the title for this morning's message 
is righteousness and justice met at the cross. And so I'm going to be reading a few scriptures at the very beginning here. So bear with me, but they are all very important. I'm going to go to five major scriptures immediately, just one verse each, beginning from verse, uh, from chapter, uh, from Psalms 33, Psalms 33, verse 5, and it says in New, New King James Version, Psalms 33, verse 5, He lost righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. So in other words, as long as we have both righteousness and justice, we will enjoy the fullness of God's goodness. Next verse, Psalms 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. In other words, you have to have both righteousness and justice for the foundation of God's throne. Next one is Psalms 99, verse 4. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Jacob there, for those of you who may not know, represents Israel. So really what it's saying is, you have executed justice and righteousness in Israel. And if you know anything about the scriptures at all, in Acts chapter 17, the Bible says that Israel was the church in the wilderness. So really you can say you have executed justice and righteousness in the church. Next verse, Psalms 103, verse 6. Psalms 103, verse 6. Here we go. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. So the issue of righteousness and justice, not just for a few, but for all from God's perspective. And last scripture that I'm going to read before I dive into the message is Proverbs 21, verse 3. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Now, from the passages we've read, it is obvious that righteousness and justice can never be separated. Let me say that one more, one more time. From all those passages, and there are many more, I just chose those five. Righteousness and justice can never be separated. I'm not sure if you paid attention to all those five verses. You, heard, you saw righteousness and justice side by side. In fact, both words are used interchangeably in the Hebrew language. Now, it is very interesting that the Bible has been historically recognized as the most important book for the development of both the rule of law and democratic institutions in the Western world. That is the fact. The Bible is the foundation, both for the rule of law and for democracy in the Western world. Psalms 19 verse 7 tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Now, our constitutional order 
based on checks and balances between branches of government, namely legislative, executive, and judicial, follows the biblical revelation of God as our judge, our lawgiver, and our king, which we find in Isaiah chapter 33, 22. So now let me dive into the meat of the message this morning. Let's go first of all to uh, Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2 from verses 11 through 14. Again, for a title this morning, I'm speaking on righteousness and justice met at the cross. Exodus 2, 11 through 14. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to, he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Move on. So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in his hand. Verse 13. And when he, won, when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Verse 14, then he said, who made you a prince and a judge of ours? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. So in this passage in Exodus chapter 2, we see the first conflict interracially. We see the first conflict in the scriptures where a Hebrew, Moses, killed an Egyptian because of some contention. Now, it is very important we recognize that even though according to the scriptures in Acts chapter 7, in verses 23 through 30, the Bible made it clear that the, Egypt, the Egyptian was wrong. If I, let's go there. Let's go to Acts 7, verse 23. Acts 7, 23. Righteousness and justice met at the cross. Acts 7, let's go to verse 24 actually, verse 24. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed. So clearly, the Hebrew was being oppressed. Something had happened in the interaction between the Egyptian and the Hebrew, which Moses saw. And the Bible said here in Acts 7 verse 24, and seeing one of them suffer wrong. Who suffered wrong? The Hebrew. He defended and avenged him who was oppressed. Who was oppressed? The Hebrew. And struck down the Egyptian. Now, let's read on. Verse 25. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. What's the point I'm making here? Moses attempted to get justice for his Hebrew brother apart from the righteousness of God 
having been established. Ah, I'm going somewhere. I read those five scriptures for you so you can see that righteousness and justice are cousins. They interchange. They come out of the same root word in Hebrew. And if you're going to have justice, you better have righteousness as the foundation. Because righteousness is the foundation from which justice comes. Justice is an offspring of righteousness. What Moses was doing is not wrong. The Hebrew was being oppressed. Very much similar to what we are seeing happening or playing out in America today, where we see people angry, frustrated because of the uh, perceived and the alleged and the ongoing systematic racial conflict in this country. So what Moses was doing was trying to right a wrong. But unfortunately, he was doing it based on his own assumptions apart from righteousness. The Bible makes it very clear that righteousness and justice are the foundation of the throne. Right here, we see justice, but no righteousness. Therefore, Moses was sentenced to 40 years in a backside of the desert. He was trying to do a right thing, but using his own means. He was trying to do something that was uh, at least in that day, that would have been perceived as being good, avenging his brother, but apart from the wisdom and the will and the plan of God in doing so. Now, Egypt will ultimately be judged for their wickedness after their blood had been smeared on the doorposts. Hey, glory to God. Mm, mm, mm. Go with me to Exodus chapter 12. Justice, rather, righteousness and justice meeting at the cross. The cross is the meeting place. If you're going to get justice, you better go to the cross. If you're going to see righteousness, you better go to the cross. The cross is the meeting place of righteousness and justice, apart from which you can have either. Glory to God. So in Exodus chapter 12, in verse 11, and thus you shall eat with a belt on your waist, your standards on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and we strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. Or if you will, I will execute justice. I am the Lord. This is what Moses was looking for in Exodus chapter 2. But he went ahead of the blood. Go 
God in his time will deal with the situation. But he will not do so because mine is just shouting. He will not do so using man's means. Righteousness and justice must come together. And the only place where they come together is at the cross. So when we saw the blood in Exodus 12, the justice that Moses and others was crying for took place. Back to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 in verse 26. We have a little more details to what happened in that Exodus chapter 2. Look at what it says. Acts 7 26. Now, mind you, he has killed the Egyptian on the first day. Now on the second day, now he comes back and finds two Hebrew men fighting. So the first day, it was Hebrew against the Egyptian. You can say black and white. But on the second day, it was Hebrew versus Hebrew, black on black. So this is what it says. And the next day, he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, man, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? When you read the passage in Exodus chapter 2, it makes it clear it is two Hebrews now. Okay? But look at what Moses tried to do. Acts 7 26. Remember? The first part, he avenged the Hebrew. This time, he tried to reconcile. <laughs> Reconciliation is a work of the cross. Apart from the cross, there can be no reconciliation. So no wonder we see in Acts 7.26, as he tried to reconcile both the Hebrews who were fighting, verse 27 tells us, but he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Hallelujah. In other words, he failed. He failed. This is the point. You and I will not get any justice or reconcile anyone except through and by the power of the cross. So he attempted reconciliation when righteousness was not present. And we know what happened. So in what happened in Exodus chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 12, the Lord's Passover, God was in type preaching the gospel to Israel. He was letting Israel know every issue that has to do with justification and justice and oppression, I will deal with it, but only through the cross. He preached the gospel to them. How? By telling them to apply the blood of the lamb on their doorpost and on the lentil. And it is when they did that, that the justice and judgment they were looking for took place. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. So what they did in Israel, or rather in Egypt, what they did in Egypt years ago, when they put that blood on the doorpost and on the lentil, was only speaking prophetically of that which Jesus 
will come and do for us in substance. So Jesus Christ is our Passover, having been sacrificed for us. So Moses' attempt failed, and it cost him 40 years. Now, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says to us, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. What does the gospel mean? That gospel that God preached to Israel in Egypt? That gospel that Paul is acknowledging, Romans 1.16? What does it mean? The gospel means good news. Good news. The glad tidings. The good news of the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is the point. This is the challenge. How can I appreciate the good news if I don't understand what I've been delivered from? Just telling people the gospel is good news, and it is good news. But the problem is when I don't fully comprehend what I have been delivered from, I don't appreciate it. When a man is acquitted of a crime for which they've been accused, they realize, they recognize, they can appreciate the magnitude of their acquittal. I remember years ago, my daughter, when she was younger, as a teenager, she asked me the question, Daddy, I'm a young girl, I've not done this, I've not done that, what do I need to be saved for? What, what do I need to be saved for? I mean, I've not done anything. And it makes sense. In a natural, you've not done anything, you've not, you've not smoked weed, you're not horning around, you're not lying, you didn't kill anybody. Why do you need to be born again? Why do you need to be saved? You see, many of us do not recognize the other aspect of this good news. And that is, there is a bad news that led to the good news. All mankind was doomed before God. Romans chapter 3 verse 12 says, there is none that is good. No, not one. Romans 3, 23 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Ezekiel tells us, that soul that sins, it shall die. Romans goes on to tell us that the wages of sin, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. In other words, for me and you and any other human living being on the face of this earth, until Jesus came and went to that cross, you are a living, moving, condemned, sentenced to death human being. Oh, hallelujah. Until Jesus came, you are a condemned man or woman who was doomed to die. That is the bad news. When Paul was speaking to the church at Ephesus, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Ephesians, yeah, chapter 2 of Ephesians, in verse 12, he said to them, he said, you were without God. My goodness. He said, not only were you without God, he said, you are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Do you know what it means to be alienated? Let, 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 me, just, let me just pause there for one second and tell you what that means. If you are living in the United States, for example, as an undocumented immigrant, or, legally speaking, an illegal alien. Do you understand the implication? 
Because Paul was telling those Gentiles that you guys are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. There is a commonwealth of being an American. There are certain benefits and privileges that you and I accrue as Americans in this country. But if you are alienated or you are an illegal alien, you may be living in the United States, but you cannot partake of those benefits. You don't have a social security number. You cannot claim unemployment if you don't have a job. You cannot get a student loan. There are many benefits that are cruise on American. Even though you are living here, you can partake of it. So think of that as Paul tells these people. He said, number one, you are without God in this world. Number two, you are separated from Christ. Number three, you are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He said, number, number four, you are strangers from the covenant of promise. And then he says, having no hope. My goodness, do you know how bad bad news can get to have all these things on top of our heads as men and women who are not partaking of the cross of Jesus? So he said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God under salvation for everyone, to the Jews first, and then to the Greek. So he was saying, in essence, having understood the death sentence that he lived in, and now seeing what God has done through the cross, oh, I cannot be ashamed of this. I cannot be ashamed of my deliverance. I thank God that Jesus came and delivered me. But that's not what, all we said, what he said. Verse 17 is where I'm going. He now says, for in it, the righteousness of God has been revealed. In what? In the gospel. In the gospel, we see the righteousness of God revealed. Wow. What does that mean? How is the gospel, or how is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel? How has that happened? In order for you to understand that, you have to really pay attention to certain scriptures and look at what really transpired at the cross. Remember I said at the beginning, the righteousness and justice met at the cross. And apart from the cross, we cannot fully live righteously, neither can we enjoy the justice that comes from God. How is the righteousness of God revealed at the cross? First of all, you must understand what righteousness means. Righteousness means being morally upright and justifiable. So God, as a righteous God, cannot wink at sin, cannot gloss over sin. His word has said the wages of sin is death. But at the same time, that same God is a God that the Bible says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That same Bible says, when we were yet sinners, doomed, God commended his love towards us. So at the cross, what Paul is saying that at the cross, he says, number one, the judgment due mankind for sin. 
But at that same cross, he sees the largeness and the incredible, unsurpassing love of God at play. At the same cross, oh, hallelujah. Sin had to be judged, and yet love had to be given. This is the righteousness of God. This is what Paul is talking about. How God, in his divine wisdom, came as a man. Because if he had not come as a man, Satan would say he cheated. He had to come as man because man sinned and fell. He took upon flesh and came as man to pay the price for man's sinfulness. But at the same time, he was God. Hallelujah. And in his capacity as God, the love of God was also in him. So what happened at the cross? At the cross, our sin was paid for in full. Remember what the consequences of sin is? The wages of sin is death. So in Jesus' dying, he paid the price in full for our sins. Please go with me to Colossians chapter 2. So you can see for yourself the result of that. Verses 13 and 14. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Thank you, Jesus. Look at what this is. And you, you can put your name right there. You can say, and bank. You can say, and Sharon. You can say, and Derek. Whatever your name is, you can put your name right there where, that you say, where it says you. And you, Linda, being dead in your trespasses. That was our condition. Every last one of us. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. Ha, hallelujah. Glory to God. He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Look at verse 14. Now he wants to tell you what those trespasses are. Verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. I don't know about you guys, man. Before I became born again, my, the, the document against me must have been this, this thick. The handwriting. Every time you did something wrong, they wrote it down. Every time you missed it, they wrote it down. Every time you missed the mark, it was written. And those things were against all of us. <laughs> but at that cross, glory to God, not only did he pay the price for our sins, God, the Bible says, was wiping out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. It is done. It is finished with. So, what happened at the cross? At the cross, don't ever forget this. God got justice. I don't know if you've ever seen all these families who are bereaved. Uh, maybe somebody killed a loved one. Something happened to them. What did they say? They said, we want to see justice. When they said they want to see justice, what does that mean? They want to see the person who was the aggressor, who committed that terrible, heinous crime, murder, killing, whatever it is. They want to see that person pronounced as what? Guilty. Before a judge. And as long as that pronouncement was made, 
they felt a sigh of relief. <sighs> Thank you. Justice has been served. So for God, oh my Jesus, as Jesus hung on that cross, God finally could breathe a sigh of relief and say, finally, sin has been judged because the soul that sins must die because according to the scriptures, the wages of sin is death. So the moment Jesus gave up the ghost and said it is finished, God says, finally. I got justice. So at the cross, God got justice. But that's just one part. At that same cross, you and I, who are the most undeserving, who are not worthy, at that same cross where God was getting justice, he was giving us righteousness. That is where righteousness and justice met. That is where the coalition of righteousness and justice took place at the cross. As sin was judged, justice came to God, and at the same time, righteousness came to us. You see, you must understand, righteousness is the root of justice. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made him to be seen, him that knew no sin, that me and you may become the righteousness of God in him. Justice is the offspring of righteousness. So we see that the notion of righteousness and justice is related. Now, these are my, these are my closing parting shots. No church ought to be found declaring something righteous that is not just. Mm. I'll leave that alone. Let me just move on. I look around us now as people are angry and frustrated about all the racial conflicts that's taking place. And this is what I see. I see a newer generation fascinated with the issue of justice. And there should be. Something ought to be done. I agree. I get it. But they are fascinated with justice but hasn't met the author of righteousness. They are trying to get justice on the street, but not understanding our righteousness that is taught in our churches. Oh my goodness. I must say that one more time. You are not going to get justice on the streets apart from righteousness. I just showed it to you. In fact, the esteemed, honorable Dr. Martin Luther King, who was the leader of the civil rights movement, many of us who are shouting and agitated and, 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 and doing all we know to do in protest, many of us miss the strength of his movement. Dr. Martin Luther King was first and foremost a man of God. And his movement 
was spirit-driven by the love of God. The movement of which we now esteem and appreciate and thank God for him. That movement began in God, sustained by God, but unfortunately, the journey come lately, forgot the foundation of righteousness at the throne of God. You cannot run with justice without righteousness. It is not sustainable. You're going to get a few things done now. Ten years later, we're back in the same spot. Twenty years later, we'll be back in the same spot. Why? Because only God can sustain it. And you cannot take him out of it. And you cannot do it apart from him. So this new generation, I know I'm going to get text messages from you. I welcome them. Thank you very much for them already. I'm thanking you in advance. The new generation are fascinated with justice, but hasn't met the author of righteousness. Now, for us, me and you, the older generation, we are preaching righteousness, but we have refused to fight for justice. Did you hear me? We, older generation, we are preaching, shouting, talking righteousness, but we have not fought for justice. Conclusion, both are insufficient. Both are incomplete. Neither represents the full scope of God's call upon us. It must be both. So what do we do? How do we move forward in closing? Number one, I offer you that gift of righteousness. In other words, if you have not been to that cross to partake of God's justice and righteousness, if you not receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I offer him now. You need to be born again. That's where it starts. Number two, in my closing, we, all of us, young and old, must be neighborly without contamination. We must be neighborly without contamination. You know the scripture of Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, body, and spirit. And they say the second is as like the first. Love your neighbor as yourselves. So we must be neighborly, but without condemnation, contamination. Luke 15 verse 1 says, sinners were drawn to Jesus. Did you hear that? Sinners were drawn to him. He didn't repel them. He attracted them. He was neighborly, but they never could contaminate him. In the Old Testament, a priest could not touch anything that was unclean. You can read that for yourselves in Numbers 19.22. I won't go there. I won't turn to it. Priests or any Israel cannot touch anything that's unclean. By touching something that's unclean, they also become unclean automatically. But that's not so in the, in the New Testament. Jesus, our king of righteousness, when the lepers came to him, Matthew chapter 8, wanted to be cleansed. He did not just cleanse them, he touched them. Oh my God. He touched them to prove to all that were looking. In the old, if I touch an unclean thing, I become unclean. But as Jesus, the king of righteousness, hallelujah, 
He brings his righteousness to bear on anyone who dare come near him. And by so doing, made them clean. That's who you and I are. We are the salt of the world, Jesus said. We are the preservatives of the earth. Meaning, anywhere you go, you are carrying within you the sanctifying, cleansing power of God. And anyone you touch or speak to, anyone that comes under the jurisdiction of your presence is subject to be cleansed by the power of God that's in you. Being neighborly without contamination. Let me close with that scripture in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In a message translation. Message translation. This is my final and last closing. Here's what it says. And this has to do with being neighborly, being neighborly without contamination. So here, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Did you say that? God has to help you. That's why you have to have righteousness in order to get justice. God has to help you. You cannot run with justice without righteousness. And you cannot say I'm righteous and don't speak out for justice. It goes both ways. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and can we add, going to school, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Go on, verse 2. Don't become a well-adjusted, no, rather, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture. That's our problem. Remember? You and I are the righteousness of God, the salt of the earth. We should be affecting our culture, not the other way around. Our culture should not be affecting us. Don't become well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. That is the problem of the church. We are not called to fit into the culture of the world. As salt enhances and allows the flavor of whatever it is salted to come out. If you put salt in a vegetable, you know what happens? The salt does not change the vegetables. No. What the salt does it allows the cells of the vegetable to break open so that the flavor that is within this vegetable will come out. What am I saying? You are a salt. You are carrying within you God-divine, God-given ability to bring change for good out of people around you. Instead, it goes on to say, fix your attention on God You'll be changed from the inside out, readily recognize what it wants from you, and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. So God helping us, we come to appreciate that righteousness and justice met at the cross. And therefore, any attempt to solve, fix, restore, re-engineer what's happening in America, I'm trusting that the church will play a very vital role in helping us drive the move 
And we will, in fact, become a more perfect union in Jesus' name. He continues on. God bless you. I'll see you next week.